Your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. Father, we ask that you would speak to us indeed from your word, that you would show us the, the way ahead, that we may live for your glory. Amen. A few years ago, there was a survey in which Parisians were asked whether they had visited their most famous monument, the Eiffel Tower. They could either say that, yes, they had, uh, no, they hadn't, or that they had no opinion on the matter. Now, I'm not entirely sure what the paper had in mind. Was it carelessness or a, a determination to give people uh, a neutral position in every circumstance? I don't know. But clearly, there are some things that we cannot remain neutral to. So, for example, I could come here tonight with a, a brand new haircut, and you could love it, you could hate it, or you just couldn't care less about it. But if you take, for example, the war in Ukraine, you can't remain neutral about that with its devastating impact on human lives. When you see a bully picking on someone smaller and defenseless, even if you can't do anything about it, you pick a side. Well, in our passage this evening, we are confronted with a similar choice. There is a no neutral moment for the people, and they do indeed choose sides. As we've heard on Sunday evenings, we're starting a new series looking at uh, John's Gospel, and in particular, uh, Jesus on the way to the cross in those last few days, and its meaning for our, our lives. And we pick up the action tonight in chapter 11. Jesus just performed the most remarkable sign, and the people watching it are having to choose. Will they believe, or will they reject it? And, and in this, John, the first thing he wants us to see is what the human heart is like what it will naturally lean towards. Now, just going back a little bit, a little under three years prior to, to these events, Jesus began his work in earnest with a remarkable uh, miracle amongst friends at a wedding. He changed water into wine. Now, if that wasn't impressive enough, it turned out that that wine was the very best. It was the, the finest claret, if you want, maybe the best Saint-Emilion Grand Cru you could ever hope for. But why did he do this? Well, in chapter 2, it tells us, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first sign through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. He did it to reveal his glory so that the people might believe and trust in him. And so over the next 10 chapters or so, Jesus continues to perform ever more impressive and remarkable signs, each time revealing his glory so that people would believe who he is. And then we come to chapter 11, and he takes it up a whole other level. His friend Lazarus is dying, and, uh, well, surely having healed others before, he can do it again, just as long as he hurries up. But no, Jesus intentionally delays. He lets Lazarus die. Now, isn't that a bit cruel? And if you just go back a few verses, so just the, the page before. At verse 4, Jesus explains, it is for God's glory, and so that God's Son may be glorified through it. And then in verse 14, he adds, so that you may believe. Do you see that pattern again? The signs are there that we may see his glory, that we may believe. So Lazarus has been dead for four days now. He's been wrapped up in a tomb. I remember once on a walk, um, we were suddenly hit by this dreadful smell, and it turns out there was a, a small dead fox on the side. Now, it couldn't have been more than a few days old, but 
It was quite unbearable, and we quickly had to move on. There was no doubting that fox was dead. Now then imagine Lazarus, a, a fully grown man, four days buried in the Middle Eastern heat. The smell of rotting and decomposing flesh would have been quite something. Even John refers to it. There was no doubt he was dead. And yet Jesus stands there and calls out in verse 43, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. This wasn't one of those medical dramas where the, the doctor comes along with his defibrillator and goes clear, and then the heart starts beating again. Now, this is something far more remarkable. Lazarus was dead, properly dead, and Jesus brought him back to life. And why did he do this? To show his glory that we might believe. And so now in our passage, the people, therefore, have a choice. Remember, they've come all over to comfort Mary and Martha. They, they have seen what has happened, and this is no longer a no-neutral moment. Let's look at verse 45. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. Isn't that wonderful? They come out out of compassion for Mary, and as they do that, they see the glory of God in raising Lazarus. And God shows compassion to them in moving them to believe in the Lord Jesus. I mean, who wouldn't, having seen something so miraculous? Surely that's, that's all that's needed. You see a miracle and then people believe. Have you ever thought that? If only my friend could see something remarkable like that, then they'd believe. Maybe we don't go as far as saying, oh, we, we need a miracle, but... Maybe we'll think of a particularly amazing word we hear from Scripture, and we think, surely my friend now will believe. I remember one time at university, I, I invited a friend to evangelistic talk, and it was brilliant. It was so compelling, skillfully explained from Scripture, and I thought, there is no way my friend won't respond to this. I turned to him at the end, and he asked me what I thought had caused dinosaurs to become extinct. Now, I must admit that, sort of threw me. I'd, we'd heard such a compelling talk on the forgiveness we have in Jesus, and my friend could only think about dinosaurs. Well, let's look at verse 46. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So John is contrasting here what those people do compared to those who believed. They had witnessed an indisputable sign from God, and rather than believe, they run over to Jesus' enemies. Now they've seen and they've heard about Jesus for nearly three years. They've witnessed the glory of God, and yet they choose to harden their hearts. The evidence is undeniable, but because it doesn't fit their view, they reject it, and that reveals the natural wickedness of the human heart. And in the case of the Pharisees, they don't even deny that Jesus is doing these things. Look at verse 47. Here is a man performing many signs. If we let him on, go on like this, everyone will believe. Having seen Jesus' works, and despite being the religious leaders who, of all people, would have known from Scripture what to look out for in the Son of God, they still reject him. And so we begin to see their real motives in verse 48. Everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. 
And so as they speak amongst themselves, they make very little attempt to conceal their real motives. If Jesus keeps doing these miracles, and there's no denying that he's doing them, then people will follow. This will have an impact on us, our authority, our jobs. Maybe even the Romans will get annoyed and and they'll come along and destroy everything, the temple, the nation, and take us into exile. Their concern isn't so much the Jewish people. Rather, it is anything that will take away or upset the status quo, that will take away what they have. Seeing the miracles and hearing Jesus should have pushed them to reflect on what it taught them. It should have softened their hearts, made them yield to the testimony, but rather they let their ungodly, their ungodliness corrupt them further. So why is it that upon seeing the same evidence, one person embraces it and the other rejects it? J.C. Ryle puts it like this, the same fire which melts wax hardens clay. If there was ever a proof that miracles do not convert souls, this is it. Think of the two thieves on either side of Jesus. One repents and the other insults. This would remind us of the human heart and its natural inclination. It is not miracles or beautifully crafted arguments that will change them. Rather, we need the Lord God himself to show his glory to our heart. Ezekiel puts it like this. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. You see, the the defibrillator is not going to work on a heart of stone. The miracle isn't. Your arguments won't either. We need the Lord to go into the operating theater to change our heart. Only he can do this. And this should therefore affect the way we pray for ourselves and for our friends. We need to ask that he would change our heart with its natural inclinations, that we may see his glory and believe. The second thing that John wants us to see is the natural inclinations, but also the natural actions of the human heart as it pursues hostility against God. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never heard anybody say, I hate God. They might say they don't believe, Yet the lives which turn their backs on him will not only ignore the evidence, but also act in a way which is increasingly in conflict with God and his word. So let's look at the Pharisees and the chief priests. Having met together to share their concerns, the high priest takes the stage in verse 49. Then one of them, then named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. Now, at this stage, it's it's worth remembering the different religious leaders and their respective practices. The Pharisees were the ultra-religious group, very legalistic, loved their rules, imposing them on others, and uh, often came into conflict with Jesus. Then at the other end, you had the Sadducees. They were a very liberal group. They didn't believe in the resurrection nor in life after death. And it is from that group that the Romans would appoint the high priests, a bit like a a puppet leader to help keep the peace. The Sadducees, until now, they haven't really seemed to take much notice of Jesus. But with the resurrection of Lazarus, they are now uncharacteristically happy to join forces with the Pharisees. Their interests are, are aligned. And so Caiaphas, a Sadducee, gets up and rightly interrupts the debate 
you know nothing at all as to say, you are all fools. Why are you going on moaning about this and what we should do? It's obvious there is only one course of action. What does he say? It is better for you that one man die for the people. Caiaphas is very simply calling for murder of an innocent man in order to sort out this inconvenience. You are concerned for this man's popularity, that he might uh, lead the Romans to feeling threatened and they might come and destroy everything? Well then, just kill him. Simple. Can you think of cases when individuals or governments will use lies, deliberately ignoring evidence in order to advance their own positions or worldview? Consider how President Putin is content on sacrificing innocent people in Ukraine as well as in his own country just to advance his own deluded, corrupt, and power-hungry agenda? Or in the news this week, uh, the American conspiracy theorist Alex Jones has just been found guilty of claiming a school shooting in which 20 children were killed. It was a hoax. And his words and, and his actions led to a, over a decade of suffering, abuse and trolling, even death threats for the parents of these dead children. Innocent people who have suffered greatly just so that he could advance his own agenda preventing gun control. For political convenience, Caiaphas is prepared to murder Jesus. That is the sort of action that the human heart is tempted to do. Now, I'm not saying that everyone is going to resort to murder every time they have a problem. But isn't it true also of us that we can be tempted by the greater good philosophy? Can you think of a time when you might be tempted to cut a corner, ignoring the ethical implications? It's rather like the principle uh, behind the so-called white lie, distorting the truth just enough to resolve a potentially sticky problem. It may be convenient and please man, but it does not please God. And so this brings us to our final point. God will bring about his saving plan in spite of the human heart. God will bring about his saving plan in spite of the natural human heart. If I can give you a quick tip when looking at narrative texts like this, is to look out for the little comments from the author. Sometimes it's very subtle, but as it is to tonight, it's pretty plain. Um, do look out for it next week. So in verses 51 and 52, John interrupts the narrative, puts the camera down, and then suddenly speaks directly to us. And like so often when he does that in his gospel, he's using the benefit of hindsight to explain, to speak into a situation, into a, a situation that no one understood was happening at the time. And this is what he says, speaking of Caiaphas. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for the nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. Now, one thing we need to realize is that he's not saying that Caiaphas has, had no idea what he was saying. He knew exactly what he was saying. He meant it, and so he's guilty and responsible for the crimes he's suggesting. But what John is saying is that the Spirit of God was speaking, inspiring him to speak something prophetic, something far deeper 
than anything that Caiaphas could possibly intend or hope or expect. In short, in his wickedness, Caiaphas is speaking about murder. The Spirit of God compelled him to reveal God's redemptive work for humanity through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Caiaphas concocted his crime, he implemented it to perfection, and he got the result he was after. Jesus would be killed a few days later. But John wants us to see that God never lost control of the events. In fact, his purpose was to use the very opposition in order to bring about his plan. Caiaphas thought he was doing it for the good of the nation and greedily for his own agenda, ensuring the stability with the Romans. But Jesus' death brought something far greater for the nation. You see, the resurrection of Lazarus was not Jesus' greatest sign. It was only a, a foretaste of what he was actually going to do. He was going to die for the whole nation. Yes, turning out to be the scapegoat for them, as Caiaphas intended. But he was going to do it intentionally of his own choosing. And then he was going to rise again for the whole nation. His resurrection achieves far more than just keeping the peace with Rome. It gives the nation life, eternal life. And on top of that, John shows that if it is true of the believers in Jerusalem at that time, then it's also true of all those scattered around the world. And not just at that particular moment, but throughout time. Jesus died for all in time and space to bring them together and make them one. So if you are a believer here today, then you can know that Jesus died for you, that you are that nation he talks about, the children of God, and that he will bring us together in his second coming. Even as wicked men plot against him, the Lord is determined to save believers all around the world all ages, all nations. The final irony of this plot is that not only could it not, this plot, determine the exact timing of Jesus' death, because in verse 54 we see that Jesus does that. He chooses when he will die by removing himself until the right time. But the plot couldn't even dictate the circumstances which went on to fulfill in minute detail, all of the Old Testament prophecies, even down to the sign that would be nailed to the cross above Jesus, King of the Jews. And in the end, the plot did not protect the temple or Jerusalem. For the Romans, a few decades later, in 70 AD, laid siege, destroyed the temple, and carried the Jews away into captivity. The very things that Caiaphas feared most, came to pass. The wonderful promises of the Lord came to pass. If only Caiaphas had remembered those words we read in Psalm 2. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, or he will be angry and your way will lead to destruction, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray.
I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the Lord Jesus. We praise you that he is enthroned in heaven, having chosen to suffer at the hands of wicked men, men whose hearts, like ours, are naturally inclined to rejecting him. Yet he was willing to die for the scattered children of God, of which we are some, that we may be changed, that we may believe. We are sorry that so often we put our trust in the wrong things. Please remind us that no authority in this world can hinder your plans and help us to believe the power of your son's death and resurrection, that we would put our trust in you alone for the sake of the glory of your beloved son, our Lord Jesus. Amen.